Welcome to the WP Tonic Podcast, brought to you by WPTonic.com, a WordPress maintenance and support service for business owners. We talk to the leaders in WordPress, business, and online marketing communities, bringing you insights on how to grow your business and achieve success. First story, WordPress of 4.9999 release might shift focus to the PHP 7.3 compatibility in the Gutenberg merge proposal timeline to be determined. Uh, I want to ask Chris, you know, how do you think uh, them um, merging PHP 7.3? So this has been something a lot of people have talked about, but uh, making it a priority, how do you feel about this? Um, we actually just ran the numbers. That's what I was looking up over here on people using Lyft or LMS and uh, we still have, let's see, sorry, this, this graph is really small. Let me blow it up. We have 2.8% of our users on PHP 5.4. We have 3.7% of our users on 5.5. We have 33% of our users on 5.6. And then we're getting up into the sevens where we have uh, the rest of the users adding up to about 50%. So 50% of our users at Lifter Master are on really, really old PHP. And at the end of the day, um, I believe in backwards compatibility, but I do think PHP as a language and the speed of um, release cycle and deprecation is accelerating. And I think we should embrace that fact. And I think it is important for WordPress to have a, a priority there on, on uh, the latest PHP. Nope, couldn't agree more. Spencer, thoughts on this? Yeah, I remember we talked a couple of weeks ago about the whole legacy of Microsoft Windows and how it took forever to get rid of the old browsers. And it's like before they can talk any more about Gutenberg or where we're going to go, let's just clean up this mess. Because from my end of things, I see all these clients that come to me with great businesses and they go, oh, we're on the, I'm not going to point out GoDaddy, but like we're on this blankety blank server still and PHP version 4.6. And then it's like, how the heck do we even get them moved over? That kind of stuff has to be resolved before you can even talk about the new technology. So, like, let's take the pain all in one big, you know, chunk, get it out of the way, and then decide who's going to move forward and how they're going to do it. Yeah, I agree. Um, Morton, thoughts on this? We're really going to talk about the PHP version part oh, of this. I don't topic. care. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. Like, okay, sure. I'll talk about PHP for a second. The, uh, uh, I think this is, this is Alain taking responsibility for something that the WordPress community has basically been sh shirking for the past several years, which is we as 30% of the web have a responsibility to actually move the web forward and stop pretending like it's okay to support ancient software. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of people that have been involved in this. There's been all these um, uh, site check things that people have been doing at WordCamps and everything to get more awareness around getting your server stack up to date. And this is the culmination of this. This should have happened a long time ago. And this is a far higher priority, I think, than anything else like everyone else has said before. And more importantly, this is an example of where WordPress can, if it wants to, take a leadership role on the web instead of just forcing backwards compatibility onto everything. This would also be a great opportunity to do things like 
reimagine what WordPress should be functioning like on the back end and say that we're not going to support ancient software anymore and get rid of some of the enormous, wasteful crap that sits in WordPress to support PHP 2.5 or whatever it is. But that's not going to happen. More importantly, this story is actually about them scrapping an entire version of WordPress just to ship Gutenberg faster, which sounds very much like someone coming up from the top and saying, what the fuck is going on? We need to get this shipped right now. I don't care if it doesn't work. Put it in before the end of the year. That's what this actually is. Because the timeline for 4.9.9 was November 5th, which would not leave enough room to ship 5.0 within this year. This looks very much like a bunch of people coming in from very high up and saying, no, we're not doing this. Scrap all that stuff. We're doing Gutenberg, 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 because it needs to be in 2018, ideally before WordCamp US. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. Move fast and break things. Yeah, it's awesome. (laughs) I mean, if you you went to the dev chat, you can read some of that in that post, but if you went to the dev chat two days ago when they were talking about this, they were basically saying, Matthias, who's one of the leads of Gutenberg, was saying, Gutenberg is ready for merge. And then he provided a list of things that aren't done yet. And the list is like massive and it's all very important things. And then in addition, there's this small accessibility issue, which is that every time a thing is changed in Gutenberg, accessibility breaks. And a lot of the accessibility issues cannot be fixed by the people who are currently working on the Gutenberg project because they don't have the necessary um, deep knowledge of React accessibility to actually fix the problems. And no one is being recruited in. I mean, the accessibility team is trying to recruit in people from other projects like Drupal to help with those pieces because they are more or less unsolvable within the current group that's working on it. And it is said to be a priority, but at the same time, there's this fast tracking of the project that kind of works counter to fixing these issues. So, yeah. Uh, who's, who's pushing the fast track? Have we ever asked who is really, what's what's the I urgency? Wonder, this? Who could it be? <laughs> who have a vested interest in making mm, it sooner? Mm, and I'm not talking about <clears throat> company here. I'm talking about like individual people, some of which are blonde and sometimes have beards and are not me, who may have a vested interest in actually getting this thing shipped finally after two years. Is that it? Is it the number that matters? Can't we just go to like, just put the five on it and leave it at the same software base? And just call oh, no, it that, five? Can, that cannot happen. 5.0 is Gutenberg. I mean, it just, it just seems like it's like a race to a, a, a dark alley that you can't go anywhere from if you don't, you know, Doesn't pre-plan. It? Right. It's like, what's the point? We're racing to get to this for what? What's the benefit? What's the upside? Then we're going to be there and like, okay, everybody back out, back out of the alley. Let's go. We got to. What do you stuff. think, John? Right. Well, here's what I think. I I can tell you from uh, working with other agencies over the past few years, working with my own clients, most people that have WordPress sites that are small businesses or even medium businesses or even businesses doing a million dollars a year, they don't log into their site. They don't pay attention to their site. And if they're on a, a, a hosting a package where they do automatic updates and it goes to 5.0, and something in their in their site breaks, you're not going to understand why. And I can tell you this too: there's a lot of agencies that 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 still Gutenberg might be on their radar like now, but th- there's a lot of them that still don't even really know what's coming. That's truth, and and I think that's going to be proved out. I'm just saying. There's just another. Proof. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's another interesting story that also popped up on WP Tavern yesterday, which is about how many themes are being shipped marked as Gutenberg ready. Yeah. Which is hilarious, considering the theme features for Gutenberg have not been finalized in Gutenberg. Yeah, I know. And no one really knows what Gutenberg ready means other than like blocks work in this theme, but that, that happens for all themes. So there's some significant marketing bullshit happening around the the whole thing as well. Does Money. that mean that people have to go, sorry, John, do they have to go back in line? Let's say Gutenberg arrives. Do all the theme authors have to go back in line for approval from the theme approval team if they're Gutenberg ready or is it just a normal update? That's a good question. I mean, it's not an official tag on WordPress.org, so they just put it in the description, uh, which is, you know, not something you can really control. But it's a, it's an interesting thing, especially because there's also this whole, like I started a ticket on the Gutenberg project probably eight months ago now, saying that we need to deprecate the name Gutenberg in as we talk about this, because that name isn't going to stick once we actually roll it out. Or rather, it is going to stick because everyone uses it, but that's detrimental to the project because the term Gutenberg is already used in the rest of the world to refer to something else. Mm-hmm. There's like Project Gutenberg, and there are even plugins to support Project Gutenberg, and there's a very popular JavaScript library called Gutenberg, which is something else. Um, and we need to like change the terminology. And officially, the Gutenberg name will be deprecated when the plugin gets merged into Core, and it'll just become WordPress. But because people have adopted the name now, we will have this split between whether or not Gutenberg features are something that should be in themes and plugins or whether or not it's just core WordPress. And the reality is, technically speaking, if you ship a theme that is not Gutenberg ready after Gutenberg is released, it doesn't work properly, right? That's, then it just isn't WordPress ready because then Gutenberg is WordPress. So there's a very strange thing where people are marketing features that are expected to be core features of any theme as if it's something special and giving a name to it. Mm-hmm. And of course they can't because there's no such thing as Gutenberg ready right now, but whatever. Sell the sizzle. Uh-huh. With that, I think we're going to move on to the second story. And I found this one really interesting. And this comes from The Verge. This is Android at 10, the world's most dominant technology. And there's a few things in this article that I found very interesting because 2008, that's, I was still probably about a year off from actually taking the first steps to learn web development. And, uh, but Android, I think we're an iPhone household. We have a a five, a six, a couple sevens. Uh, But a lot of my friends have Androids. Android is uh, actually eclipsed Windows as the most popular OS worldwide. Uh, And in the U.S., it has the market share, though iPhone might have the notoriety. Uh, And one of the things that I found very interesting in this article was Android was developed by Google because they thought at the time that Microsoft was going to uh, dominate the, the mobile space the way that they did the desktop space. Now, anybody that knows like a market share of Windows Phone it just is completely uh, very, very small. So, you know, nobody could predict iPhone got as, would get as big as it did. But I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, Spencer. Uh, I'm by hook or crook dedicated to Apple stuff because 
Years ago, I did Windows. In the early days, uh, I have a love of flying these little machines called trikes, which are like motorcycles with wings. And I was in the video and photography back before it was really economical to do so. And the point was, back then, I had all these you know homebrewed Windows machines and so forth. When I was finally able to like make the move over to Mac, it just worked for me. And then I got onto iPhone like everybody else. Recently, I got frustrated with that whole iPhone 6 Plus debacle about a year and a half ago, and I made an attempt to jump over to Android or, or Google operating system or whatever it is called these days. I found that I was so in, embedded in the way it works that for me, I couldn't make the jump. Now, anecdotally, I'm telling you the story, but the point is I get the idea why people love Android and why it, it's it, you know so pervasive. You have to be in the cult of Mac to some extent. And even myself, who I'm not really enamored with the company anymore, I found I'm stuck. I can't get out of the ecosystem. I'm on a Mac now. I've got iPhones. I got iPads. I got everything is in that ecosystem. When I tried to make the leap, it was not only my own inability to just make the metaphor changes of how to do stuff, but it was just all the like, oh, shit, this thing works, but this thing won't. And this software I use every day and this thing won't. And like I can do my texting on my desktop that goes through my iPhone, but if I moved to Android, I couldn't. For other people who are starting fresh or who are in other countries, non-Westernized countries who are starting to get on phones, I can totally see how their only device needs to be a phone or a tablet or something running Android. It makes perfect sense. So it doesn't surprise me. And I would say more and more, I find less of a reason to work exclusively on a desktop, especially you know if you have a big tablet or, or mobile device. 90% of the stuff can be done that way. So I could completely see it. But for the rest of us, I, I, I people or Mac people, I don't know what the future brings because it doesn't seem to be very innovative. I'm running a three and a half year old PowerBook or MacBook Pro, I mean, because I couldn't bear the thought of getting rid of all the connections and stuff. Yeah, it does seem like the five-year playbook that Steve Jobs left behind has kind of been run through. Uh, but when they put out products, people still jump to go buy them. So that's why Apple is the uh, highest valued company, even eclipsing Exxon Mobil, which is just ridiculously crazy. Chris, thoughts on this article? It's on Android. It was about 2010 when I remember my business partner, Thomas, moved from uh, over to <laughs> Apple. Uh, as a developer, now he's there. And just recently, I saw him switch to the Android phone from the iPhone. And I think a lot, I think the big uh, um, signal of, that might have start shifting things to that the Apple fan club, where some people are willing to try out Android, was the $1,000 price point on the iPhone. I think that was a mistake. I think it's a little too high. For sure. Sticker shock. Even if the Android's still expensive, that's just, I think we're a little too early to hit the $1,000 price point, And that's part of I, of what people are considering. I Like Spencer, I'm totally locked into Apple products. It would be difficult for me to switch. But I'm not too happy when my iPhone um, 6 goes and I need to upgrade it. If it's a $1,000 price point, I'm not, I'm not stoked about that. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm probably just going to upgrade to like a 7 or 8 when my 6 goes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Morton, thoughts on this? I'm Android all the way. I've been Android since the beginning. <laughs> I have. I, I was like on my desk, I just have a stack of phones because as they die, I just keep them. So I have, I think I have like seven or eight phones on my What desk. phone do you use now? <clears throat> I have the uh, original Pixel. 
with the fingerprints yeah. sensor on the back. What it, kind of computer do you use? Laptop. The one I'm on right now is a MacBook Pro. It's f- 2014, I think. So is MacBook Pro and an Android phone a good combination? Yeah, like, it's fine. all good. Okay. I don't, I don't have any problems. <laughs> I also run. I also like. I'm in Mac uh, OS X right now, or Mac OS, or whatever the hell the thing's called. The current mountain range, whatever it is. Um, but I also have boot camp on my computer and I use Windows on my Mac as well. So, you know, I'm, I have to be agnostic. That's part of my job. Um, Android, like, it, it's funny because this, this whole, like, switching from Android to uh, iPhone thing uh, is something you often hear about. What you will very rarely hear are people who are saying, I was on Android and I switched to iPhone Mm-hmm. And I found that it was impossible because I was too locked into the Google ecosystem. And this is key because the difference between the Android ecosystem and the iPhone ecosystem is the iPhone ecosystem is specifically designed to lock you into it so that once you're inside, you can't get out again. There have been multiple major international legal cases around this, uh, especially around iTunes, how for a very long time you couldn't, if you bought music on iTunes, you had to listen to it through an Apple device. Uh, you had no other choice. Uh, that ended up in court in Europe and several European countries just flat out blocked iTunes for a very long time to make Apple fix that problem. Um, and Apple's strategy continuously all the way up until today, when they like a couple of days ago, they bought uh, Shazam, is to lock people into their ecosystem. It's very, very strategic on their part. Um, what you're starting to see is that on the computer market, more and more Apple users are switching over to Windows because they're realizing that Windows is actually as good or better in many use cases. And that all this mythology around Apple being better for creatives and all that stuff just is myth or was true like 15 years ago, but isn't true anymore. Um, And what you're also seeing is that slowly but surely, app developers are realizing you can't just target the iPhone market because the iPhone market is actually much smaller than the Android market worldwide. Um, now, on top of that, if we just step away from Android and iPhone for a second and look at how these mobile devices have changed how we interact with things, the um, emergence of progressive web apps as a thing that we need to focus on comes from the reality that everyone is moving from large screen devices to small screen devices and uh, app developers and web developers and everyone else is realizing we cannot sustain a business model where we have to make individual versions of whatever we build for each individual platform. Mm-hmm. We need to figure out a way of using one unifying uh, platform that can then serve different audiences with different devices. And interestingly, that unifying platform is web platform. Um, and with all the new capabilities that are in web platform, like OpenGL and you know VR and all that stuff, the distance between what you can do natively on a device and what you can do on web platform on all devices is narrowing to the point where we we can theoretically see a future where you don't develop apps for a specific platform anymore, unless you're specifically targeting that platform for some reason, which and that reason would be money. Uh, or if you're using some specific technology that's embedded in that particular platform, which is also why all these platforms are now, you know, as web platform is kind of converging as the baseline for um, progressive web apps, all these platforms are now trying to come up with new reasons to split people apart. So they have like different types of AR 
software like AR kit and the Android version of it are fundamentally different. So they don't, there's no, uh, they do different things in different ways. So you have to write two different applications and you can see that other emerging technologies are also developing their own things. So you have Oculus is very different from uh, uh, what's that other magic leap thing that like, they're also trying to develop different standards. So yeah, everybody tries to silo it, but I think in my experience, I get on a client side, many people call me who don't know even what responsive web design is at the base level. So they call and they say, they say, do you do apps? I need apps. And I say, why do you need an app? They don't understand the fundamental reason that their mm. website will look just as good. They think that I say, are you running something like a jogging uh, tracking software that you need you to do that on the, web. the GPS and so forth. The second reason, though, which I find is likely to diverge once we get to like, I call it democratization, is Apple's lock-in. Like Chris said, he's using the 2014 and you're using MacBook Pro. I'm using MacBook Pro, but my number one compelling reason why I'm still sort of stuck on this iPhone, although I did get an eight and I give my kid my six, is that I like the integration, for example, like with just the text messaging. I know it sounds ridiculous, but the fact that my text call texts and other calls can come through my actual laptop is a huge innovation to me because I like to just have my headset on, answer the phone type of thing. And it's a unifying experience. I tried, I didn't maybe succeed in finding it, but if there was a way that I had that agnostic experience with any kind of phone, Android or otherwise, I would say there's virtually nothing that can't be done on windows. My kid has a windows machine and it rocks. We built it in a, you know, weekend project for $400, right? And it's just amazing. So no one uses the phone anymore, Spencer. You're old. I know it's so weird. People still like to talk. I can't figure out why, but they. <laughs> my, my, ho- my holographic a feature. feature of your pocket computer. My my future is where I do the like uh, Star Wars, and a little hologram of me comes up, and I go hello, and I you know get into Excellent. their living room. With that, we're going to move on to our. <laughs> Third story, and this comes from a friend of the show, Robert DeVore, who is the mastermind behind WP Dispensary. And recently, he's also uh, released a plugin delivery drivers for WooCommerce. He's behind the plugin DocuPress. And this story is called All In One Year Later. And I felt like, you know, a lot of what he was saying here resonated because, you know, working for yourself and, you know, being an entrepreneur like he's doing, like having a product that you support and try and sell, it's it's tough going. Uh, Chris, you know, I don't know if you had a chance to read this, but, you know, I really felt like this might, you know, resonate with you at, at some level. Yeah, and just just so I'm 100% clear, did Stripe shut him down like he was not able to use Stripe to process payments? That's what it seems like. I don't know the details, but that's really what it seems like. So yeah, I don't Yeah, so um WP Dispensary for those of you listening is a it's a platform plugin for marijuana dispensaries. And all startups run up against all kinds of stuff, whether it's uh you know, marketing challenges, tax issues, uh, you know, product market fit, competition, legal issues is one of those things. And if you go into something like uh, marijuana, there's going to be some, you know, legal issues because it's not 100% ironed out how legal it is everywhere in the United States. Um, That being said, an entrepreneur often 
you know, you have to get on the bleeding edge sometimes if you're going to lean in and maybe it's tax issues, maybe it's legal issues. Um, so I think all in all, albeit probably painful, I think it's probably been a good experience for him. And, you know, that's what it's like when you're kind of on the bleeding edge. Um, so I just found that really interesting and going from freelancer to product back to freelancer a little bit. Um, it's hard. It's not easy to start in my experience, a you know, WordPress product business, there's a lot of ups and downs and I haven't run into any legal issues, but I could see how that would be uh, an obstacle that some might hit. And if an industry is emerging, like for example, the last time I was in Barnes and Noble, I was really surprised at how large the, you know, the marijuana section is. It's like, it's, it gets bigger and bigger, like marijuana businesses, uh, you know, all this stuff around pot. And I'm like, okay, this is really kind of becoming a pop culture thing, at least in the United States. Um, so therefore, it's not a surprise to me that somebody in the WordPress community would like think about that for a custom post type. But uh, yeah, I would just encourage him to keep going and keep pivoting. And, you know, sometimes your failures are a big learning experience. I know for me as an entrepreneur, I had some failures in the real estate industry outside of software and I learned a ton. I, I consider it really valuable and uh, lessons learned along the way and I'm better for it. And I hope he feels the same way. Definitely. Morton thoughts on this article. Uh, so I think Robert is experiencing what a lot of people who are getting into an emerging market are experiencing that, you know, if you want to be first, you will suffer the consequence of being first in a market that isn't mature yet. I mean, uh, recreational use of marijuana becomes legal in all of Canada on October 17th this year. Uh-huh. So I have a slight suspicion that there may be one or two people who are interested in, you know, selling stuff and marketing it online in Canada in about a month. Uh, so like, there is an emerging market here. The challenge, as Chris pointed out, is that this is like all uncharted territory. and the legalities around it have are not even finalized in Canada yet, right? This, each province is trying to figure out how this is going to work, what, who can sell, how they can sell, how the sale methods, which methods, right? So on, on that front, emerging markets are, have, the op, have the possibility of being huge profit makers or to, total disasters. And you don't know that until you've run that course for a long time. Um, on the uh, more like what happens when you go from freelance to product to product to freelance and everything like that, I think w what what he's describing is pretty much the standard experience that a lot of people have, which is when you're freelance, you're constantly picking up new work, right? So you have this drive where there, you have basically an income flow that is kind of wavy, right? If you if you get if you set up a good rhythm you'll always have the next project coming in as you're fading out of the previous one and you have like these sine waves that kind of cross each other out, right? So you don't get these dips. Whereas when you have a product, you're so suddenly very reliant on that product actually making money all the time. Um, 
And that's why you see these bizarre things, like for instance, when they talk about, like, let's say Apple, um, people are saying, oh, you know, Apple's uh, Apple's uh, revenue is uh, flattening out. And, and uh, investors are like, what? I'm not putting money into that anymore. It's like, what the hell? <laughs> They're literally saturated their market. That's why they can't get any more people to buy their thing, right? Where the reason why the graph looks like this is not because it's a bad product. It's because that's the end of how many people are willing to buy anything. Um, and when you're starting out with a product like this, it's just that that graph looks like this all the way at the bottom of your chart. So it takes a very long time to build something up. I like to equate it to when I tell people about, like, people contact me all the time and say, they're going to start a blog or it used to be blog. Now it's a podcast. So now people want to start a podcast because they want to make money. And I have to tell them like, look, if you're starting a podcast, make the assumption that for at least one whole year, you will just bleed money. You'll be paying into this thing. It'll cost you an enormous amount of money and you won't earn any money for a year. Then you might earn enough money to just cover your expenses after a year. And then it takes a couple of more years before you start really earning big bucks on it. So there's an investment here. And the funny thing is, if we step away from the web and in any other commercial industry, this is the assumption, right? You go to the bank and you get a massive loan because you have to get a physical location. You have to get all the hardware that goes into that physical location. You have staff, you have all these other expenses. So normal non-web businesses make that assumption upfront. We're going to like, this is going to cost $600,000. In the, in the next two years. And we're not going to earn that back for another 10. But we're doing this because it's a long-term business. The assumption that these things are just going to automatically earn tons of money from day one is some, something that only exists on the web because our overhead generally is very, very low. So it feels like anything can make money right off the bat. And then when you then go into something which has like legal gray area and you can't get funding from banks, <laughs> it does not get better. So. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned like emerging markets, like and exactly like what you're saying about podcasts is, is the same thing what blogs were 10 years ago. Um, and and the, the thing about Canada, I, I have a client actually, I maintain his e-commerce deal and uh, his company makes a lot of the fixtures for the dispensaries and they are literally working around the clock to ship stuff to Canada right now because everybody in Canada is ordering from them. Um, <laughs> uh, it's really funny because I was a kid, a heavy metal kid in the 80s. Uh, so 17-year-old <laughs> me, like it, it compared to 47-year-old me now, like now it's like I couldn't have even imagined this world being like this. Uh, you know what I mean? Not having to run from cops. Um, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, Spencer, what did you think about Robert's article? Uh, the first thing is that there's an old saying, I don't know who said it, but, you know, pioneers end up with arrows in their backs, right? Yep. So he's got the compounded problem, as Morton rightly pointed out, which is that he's not only going into the uncertainty of the marijuana industry, but he's really under the control of a third party, which is my second point. So the arrow in his back really came from Stripe. It didn't come from the marijuana business. It came from Stripe because Stripe has a higher purpose and a higher master to serve, which is they don't want to be responsible for the legal consequences of the United States until this stuff all falls out. The second issue, though, and I had a personal experience with this at the start of my tech career in 2000s, was when you go to play on somebody else's field, you have to remember that everything can be taken away from you at any time. And even if you're a 
a wisecracker like I tend to be and you're willing to play the nuclear option, it still is going to end. It's just going to end in whatever dramatic fashion you want and then everybody will forget about you. So it's good that he doesn't have kids. At least he doesn't say that. It's good that it sounds like he's young and he's got a supportive wife. And it's good that he, you know, got kicked in the balls at this stage because it sounds like he'll figure out a way to get around the stripe problem and he'll move on. But the idea, I like Morton's sine wave metaphor. I found that no matter what kind of industry I happen to be in, whether it was back in the days of law or real estate or anything else, there are always feasts and famines. And if you're going to try something bold, especially where you could get shot in the back unexpectedly, this is a good lesson to learn early. You know what? Have a couple side gigs and backups because ultimately... There's no free lunch here, especially in an area where everybody is going to be running for the gold, right? And there's going to be a lot of arrows being shot from your competitors as well as from third parties like Stripe. So it's a great story, very inspiring. The fact that he's a big boy and brushed himself off and he's back up and running is great. But we all experience this every day. And as a 51-year-old, I like your part of that, you know, 51-year-old who grew up in the Ferris Bueller days, and literally that was my high school, uh, I... I just find it's amazing. I didn't think I'd be doing this kind of shit at 51. I thought I'd be, you know, sitting on an island just chilling out. But the idea is I like this excitement. I like how the world keeps changing because every time I sort of sit back and go, maybe I'll get out of it. I'm like, no, there's too many cool things to do. We got to, you know, the next thing is right here. I can't sit around. I'm not, you know. And by the way, I listened to uh, James Altucher's podcast and he had William Shatner on who I love personally. And William Shatner, I think is, I think he said he was 89 or something. And he's off traipsing around the world and doing all kinds of new stuff. And I just figured this is an example of how the world will work today and going forward. People will not retire. They will not fade away unless they want to just decide to die because there's just too many cool new things happening at such an accelerated pace. And this is one of them. No, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, we got about 20, a little less than 20 minutes left. So what I'm going to do... I'm going to combine uh, two of these articles. There's the fourth article was how to integrate offline and off online and offline for the best overall result. Talking about marketing awareness, like digital brands, uh, investing in offline advertising and brand awareness. And then the sixth story was 99% of businesses plan to up their digital marketing spend next year. Uh, Oh, you know, maybe (laughs) I don't, I I don't need that uh, ad in yellow pages. I don't know, man. Uh, you know, so I'm, I'm just going to say like, in, in just go around the room, you know, Chris, how do you balance your marketing spend between digital and between, you know, offline in-person or, you know, traditional marketing channels? 80, 20, uh, online, but I do do a lot of investment offline. And for me as a small business, that's relationships like going to conferences and meeting people in person. Like um, I'm getting ready to go to a conference with, with about 30 different WordPress companies. And I've met you, John, at a WordCamp. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I sponsor WordCamps. Um, so, and that takes travel and plane tickets. And that's a lot. So basically just relationships is a part of sales. Um, I like to call it clicks and bricks. It's, there is an opportunity in the offline world for marketing. I have done direct mail before, um, but it's more experimental. But I do know that just because something else is in vogue now, whether that's content marketing or Facebook advertising, it doesn't mean the old ways just magically stopped working. 
Um, so there's, and oftentimes they get a lot cheaper. So if you do, you know, if I don't, I'm not, I can't say for sure because they haven't tried to place a TV ad, but um, you know, when the dollars are moving online, sometimes some old ways that still work become cheaper or get, you know, because they got a little bit disruptive. Um, but because I'm an online business and most of the people building, using my tool or building online businesses, I'm pretty much an online guy, but I don't take for granted the power of the offline in-person world. And if my niche was bigger, I may consider doing a billboard. And if we zoom out and look at, you know, WordPress versus Wix or Squarespace as a whole, or, you know, hosting companies, like I remember riding around seeing GoDaddy billboards and stuff like that. Um, I think WordPress in general could be using that stuff more, but it isn't. But at the same time, a lot of the plugin and the theme companies and the agencies, they're not really big enough to, or, or you would think they're not big enough to like pay for advertising or be able to geographically target uh, advertising through billboards effectively. So it's, it's interesting. I, I think it's, um, I mean, my big take is, yeah, online marketing is where it's at. A lot of people are going to increase the spend. A lot of small, medium, and enterprise businesses, are that's where they're going to focus. But there still is a lot of opportunity in the offline world, especially in relationships at conferences, trade shows, giving talks, uh, philanthropy, sponsoring things. There's, there's opportunity there. Something that you said that really uh, struck a chord with me is, you know, for many, many years, I was a W-2. I, I, I only started working for myself, uh, you know, in 2012. But recently, I've been working with a lot of businesses that are more rooted in that traditional type of sales funnel where, you know, it, it, maybe it starts with um, people filling out a contact form or a phone call. But they do things like go to trade shows. They go and travel to, to places and shake hands and have relationships. And the sales cycle is a lot longer because, you know, maybe the purchases are a little bit bigger, but, but a lot of the business gets done in person with handshakes and, and things of that nature. Uh, obviously, you know, some of those people use me to help them with the, the digital part of it, but where the deals get finalized is in person. Spencer, you know, how do you balance your marketing stack and, and, you know, where do you figure out how to, how to strike that balance? Well, the first thing that for me personally, as a, as a general rule, and we try to teach this to people who come to us for help is that it really depends on the type of product you're selling. So for example, if you have the type of product that is, let's call it monolithic, it serves one purpose, right? It's a square peg for a square hole. You can get away with just finding out the words to say and then pouring more money at the types of marketing that work, right? So once once you've got the uh, ShamWow or the Sponge Daddy and you figure out what works, you just go with it and you don't have to personally talk to people. They get it. If you're in a complicated business that involves relationships and more things going on that just one thing for one purpose, such as an agency might do. I default back to old school. I mean, I'm an old fart, like I say, but at the end of the day, no matter what marketing I use, I still have to get into a conversation with people. And what I find is that my secrets, I try to teach other people about, I have words that I've used from like birdie on a hippo's back, which is to say, find somebody that's got a bigger market of people with a particular pain 
and then go in and offer to, you know, pick the little bugs off the back. They're happy to have you and their clients, their customers are happy to have you there as well, because then you already know in advance what it is you're trying to reach or who you're trying to reach. And so from the standpoint of whether it's digital or old school, ironically, my other metaphor is it's like one of those boats where like a Bugs Bunny cartoon where everybody runs to one side of the boat and the boat tips and then they go to the other side. Well, I found today that email is less effective than it used to be. Phone calls are way more effective. Postcards, if you have that kind of thing, surprisingly effective because everybody gets like nothing in the mail anymore. I get like nothing. And all of a sudden a postcard comes in and I say, what the heck? What? What? Who? What? And I go to the website. The website's on there, but I'm like, what? So at the end of the day, though, everything still comes down to get somebody's attention, either in a broader market that you find a niche or go find a hippo and start asking if it's okay to pick the bugs off the back and then start conversations with anybody. Even a five minute call or a 15 minute phone call will get you better results, in my opinion, than trying to force people to read a lot of stuff or watch a video or open an email because everybody is just down to zero attention span until they actually start using their mouth with a real human being. And it doesn't work every time, but we're really personally been testing. What can we do to get their attention? And what we find is that you have to use the same shiny ball syndrome to get their attention, but then bring them from the online world to a phone call. Definitely. Martin, thoughts on, on finding a balance between online and offline marketing? Yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, there's, there was a thing um, in, the, in, the big, well, in the middle of the blogger.com boom thing that we're at the tail end of now. There was this thing where any event you went to where they were talking about marketing, everyone was like, you need to you know, scrap all your offline marketing and just put all your money into some like a blog and a social media manager and set up an Instagram and all that stuff. And some of us were like, no, that is one basket. You don't put all your eggs in it. That's a really bad idea. You kind of need to figure out who your audience is and how to reach them and where they are and what they're doing and then talk to them in the place they are and the language they understand. I mean, you see this in TV, right? If you watch network television, you can very quickly figure out who the target audience for any particular show is based on what ads they're airing in between, which is a fun game to do because like you watch network news during the day, all ads are about like AARP, (laughs) which I guess is some sort of retirement thing in the United States. It's all like retirement and chair lifts up elevators uh, and like, you know, oh no, I fall, I fall and I can't get up that type of stuff. (laughs) And then in the hot, in the, um, uh, prime time, you have ads for extremely expensive cars, right? So it's very clear that they know exactly what demographic is watching which part of what show, and then they send ads to match that. If also, if you watch like Dancing with the Stars, which I watch all the time, it's very clear that the advertising for Dancing with the Stars skews heavily female, right? So there's a lot of ads for things that women are more interested in, like clothes. Uh, like specifically like TJ Maxx type things and uh, or winners in Canada. And there's much less ads that are targeting people like me, who is uh, men. But then when you watch other types of shows, it's all golf and stupid cars driving over hills and in the snow and stuff, which is very clearly targeting men, right? The, 
understanding where your audience is and speaking to them is what matters. That your audience is not always going to be online. It's not going to be offline. Even if it's online, it's going to be in very different locations based on your kind of products. Um, and you need to you need to actually invest in all of those things to get anything to work. So, but I'm glad to see people are spending more money on online advertising because I'm I hate it when I go into companies who say they don't have money to do, you know, update their website or even build a website or do any kind of online marketing. And then I learned that they spend like $30,000 a year on advertising in yellow pages, mm-hmm. right? Because that's what they always done. And they believe that there's money there or they believe that they get business from that. And I'm like, yellow pages is like, can you just give me $30,000? I'll go out and burn it. That will actually get you more interest because then there'll be a new story about a business burning money outside. That will bring you more business than yellow pages. So, Yeah. It's it's hard to change. Uh, people either get it or they don't. You know what I mean? It, it's hard to convince well, them. Well, if you work in marketing, it's your job to show them that oh, things know. are different. And sometimes that means like actually saying, give me X money, like just a little bit of money, and I'll show you that I can drive people to your business just to get them to understand there's yeah. more to it. But then at the same time, be, be um, accurate about it. Don't say we're going to shift your entire budget over to Instagram because that, that yeah. might not be the Don't best thing, right? Don't do that, yeah. Uh, okay, I, I didn't know if we got time for uh, this last story. Maybe just a speed round. But this was uh, on the Elementor Talks podcast and they had uh, Elliot from Advanced Custom Fields on there. I listened to it last night. I thought it was a pretty good uh interview and it is really weird because he went through a shift as well at one point acf which i used to build a lot of websites they had an add-on model uh with the with the repeater and Mm -hmm. some of the other fields were like add-ons and then they shifted to pro and i had totally forgotten about that entirely but i had i had bought some of these add-ons before a bit and (laughs) for a while i i was buying individual (laughs) licenses and i'm like oh i could just buy the pro license and and be good um chris you know uh, you have a a similar type of product you sell a product in the wordpress space to developers you know what are your thoughts on adjusting what how your product uh, revenue model is over time have you ever had to do that with lifter lms yes so I, uh, I started with a paid only product for $150 and then I shifted to a free product plus add-on, uh, which is where I'm at now. So I call that freemium plus add-on. And, uh, and then I developed bundles of add-ons. So that was the next evolution. Um, so yeah, like pricing models and distribution models change. And I think that's only natural and you want to take care of your users as you navigate through the different, through the transitions. So yeah, that's, that's how that went for me. And I, um, yeah, that's interesting to think about going from add on to just a simple pro. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's thought provoking for me. I'll, I'll think about that. Um, the other thing I just want to add about his story from the interview was I like the conversation with a focus on the users. So Elementor is really like a user facing product. And um, you said Lifter for LMS, my product for developers. It's also for users that are, you know, we're their very first introduction to WordPress. So we get both. 
as our customer base and user base. And uh, I'm always just trying to take care of some the someone at their first exposure to WordPress and to help them onboard and figure it out without, you know, descending into chaos. Um, and Elementor, you know, is like that. Like it's, it's giving everyday non-WordPress people the ability to build websites or an agency or a freelancer to build websites very quickly, more efficiently. Um, so at the end of the day, I, I think that an ACF is more just like a developer tool. Like you, uh, you're not necessarily, it's not really meant for the average first time user. Um, so everything has its niche, but I've always been fascinating at how big ACF is as a, um, as a product, as the ubiquity of it in the same way, at least among developers. Whereas like the page builders even take that to a whole nother level because they get the developers and the users. Um, but everybody needs a website. <laughs> so, so those are like just these massive markets. So the conversations of these, these kind of products is really uh, interesting to me. I'm more I'm more of a niche product in online education, but these are like really big niches for just developing custom websites or page builders. So I, I do find it fascinating to just see where they're at on their journey. I think John stopped listening. Controlled. Hello. Oh no! Uh, I'm text messages to, to my dog. Uh, Morton, <laughs> thoughts on this? Uh, I didn't listen to the podcast, but uh, I have a comment about ACF specifically. If you've been following the uh, debate over Gutenberg, one thing stands out above all other things, and that is ACF is so ubiquitous in the in this community that people actually use it as an argument against other features in WordPress that are not the same thing. Like, for instance, why do we need Gutenberg? I have ACF. That's pretty intense for an, a plugin that's focused purely on developers. And the fact that, like, what plugins do I install in pretty much every site I build is Gravity Forms and ACF. Right. Because Gravity Forms gives me crazy custom forms and ACF gives me absolute control over everything I do. And the new Gutenberg integration in ACF is exactly what is needed for Gutenberg to become something that's accessible to everyone. So you don't need to write like massive piles of code to make custom blocks. If you just need blocks that are, that are not too fancy, you can just use ACF and you can build up blocks and sets of blocks and do all this fancy stuff out of the box, which, is, which was kind of one of the conditions for Gutenberg's success. So whatever, whatever value we put on ACF in terms of uh, community contribution it is not enough. Like that one plugin is one of the reasons why Gutenberg, no, WordPress is so successful today. If ACF did not exist, we probably wouldn't be where we are today simply because developers would not be able to build things as quickly. Now, that's not to say there aren't other things that do the same thing. We have custom meta blocks from uh, Web Dev Studios and there's, um, uh, what is it called? The uh, other thing that also does blocks uh, or boxes, meta boxes, pods, yes. Pods. But ACF has become the standard to the point where you're, there are times we wonder, shh, you know, this maybe some of this stuff should just be baked into WordPress core because everyone uses it and is considered the standard, right? Uh, so 
I, I applaud everyone who's contributed to ACF for for moving the entire community forward, and they should be lauded as the you know some of the people that are responsible for WordPress success. Um, how to build a business around something like that is truly challenging, and it's going to be interesting to see whether the Gutenberg features that I've added to ACF and this and the fact that some of them are in the free model and everything, how that will impact them long-term. Uh, but, you know, all, all the best of luck to them because they're, the success of ACF is integral to the continuing success of WordPress itself. I agree. Thoughts on this, Spencer? Well, I think it ties up a couple of things we talked about today, which is, first of all, Morton said it, but I'll use the term utilities. I mean, it's inescapable for anybody who is a Rosetta Stone between a user and a WordPress site. Gravity Forms and ACF, I don't know how you can do without it. I was an early adopter when I preferred back in the old days to use pods for solutions. And my partner back then was a, a Google programmer. He was the highest level capability. And he chose pods because it saved a bunch of time. ACF does the same thing today. So my challenge, and to be brief on this, is that I would say this reminds me of a thing we talked about a while back because I'm all big about how Jigoshop got basically bought out and became ultimately part of automatic as WooCommerce and everything else. Somebody's going to have to look in the mirror at some point really quick and decide, are we going to buy out Elliot or are we going to have a brawl going on? Because I can't think of anybody that doesn't know about ACF who's building WordPress websites. And if it doesn't continue to remain let's say compatible, if somebody shoots an arrow in Elliot's back for this plugin, there's going to be a lot of people upset about it because you're going to have to remake, undo, and so forth. Far better that they work out some kind of peace and love arrangement. Maybe Gutenberg works with ACF. Maybe they bring him in. Who cares? But figure it out because this is an example like Gravity Forms of a utility that is absolutely indispensable. And at the same time, doesn't hurt anybody. I mean, the fact that more is good for the economy of WordPress in general because now a regular guy, a regular girl who's a, you know, a, a freelancer can say, oh, yeah, I actually can build some kind of cool solution for you because I don't necessarily have to code it out and spend the next six months on it. So, but who would buy it? The thing is, I think the pro version is, again, I had this strong opinion before. I, I had this issue with Pippa Williamson about EDD way back when, where he started to grow it out and he's just really responsive and he's posted about it, but how like, Plug in, plug in, plug in, plug in, plug in, plug in, plug in. And then before he realized it, he sent me the update email. And I said, Pippin, you just sent like 37 emails three times a day for a week. For F's sake, just bundle the whole goddamn thing together and let me pay you one time a year for everything because you're going to make me insane, right? Now, I don't know if you ever did that because I jumped ship and I went to WooCommerce. But the point was, in the pro version of anything, it makes sense. Even if you start with freemium, Offer a pro and just build some crazy great shit for your clients and let them pay the larger amount. Gravity Forms has been doing that for years and it obviously works. Uh, for Divi, we use Divi. You know, Elegant Themes moved to this model a million years ago and it's awesome. And now they have this huge base of users that'll stay with them forever. So if they ever get bought out, at least it'll be very clear what, you know, multiply that figure times six and that's what the automatic should pay for Elliot's business and let him continue running it, but as a pro version or something. Who knows? But definitely the, the a la carte thing only works to a certain extent. I realize you have to do it when you only have onesies, twosies, threesies, but after it reaches a point where people have to buy 12 things for $49 to $100 each, then you get the WooCommerce feeling of like, come on, stop bending me over here. 
Yep, definitely. So I think we've uh, hit our time limit. So I'm going to let everybody tell us where to find them. Uh, Spencer, how do we get a hold of you? If you need any help with a profitable WordPress membership site, you can reach us at wplaunchify.com. Nice. Morton, how do we get a hold of you? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn Learning, where I uh, create courses about how to build a better web. And if you want to follow me ranting about things, you can also look at me up on the Twitter. Chris, how do we get a hold of you? You can find me at lifterlms.com. You can find me in your earbuds on the LMS Cast podcast. And if you want to find me in the offline world, you can find me in Portland, Maine at a WordCamp on November 3rd. Woohoo. Oh, can I see one self say one self-serving thing? Yeah. Uh I'm turning 40 in October, and to celebrate, I'm running a fundraiser for the Norwegian Refugee Council, which, to be clear, is not a f- <laughs> an organization to help Norwegian refugees like me. It is an organization that helps refugees all over the world. Um, the fundraiser is running yeah, from right now until October 17th, and I'm doing an AMA series on YouTube and on LinkedIn, a video AMA, AMA series to support it. So... If you want to help refugees, you can contribute to it. If you want to ask me a question, you can, and it might get answered in the video series. And you find all that information on my website, morton.com. Nice. Definitely a worthy cause. Where do we find you, John? Oh, you can find me at my website, which is lockdownseo.com. You can find me on my YouTube channel. Just uh, go on there and search hashtag lockdownseo. Putting out new videos once a week. Just dropped one this morning on how we do SEO audits in 2018 It's 23 minutes of goodness. So go check it out. And uh, if you're looking for Jonathan, who's on vacation, you can find him at WP tonic.com and he's WP tonic pretty much everywhere else. And so for the WP tonic, posse in effect we're saying peace out on this episode be sure to check back jonathan's dropping fresh episodes twice a week see ya thanks for listening to wp tonic the podcast that gives you a spoonful of wordpress medicine twice a week